I'm gonna tell stories, I'm gonna laugh, <laughs> I'm gonna sing. We're gonna sing! <laughs> Hello, folks. Welcome to the third episode of the Wander Woman podcast. I'm Kaylin Otto, and I run the wanderwoman.online travel blog. Um, if you've been listening to the show, it's very new, but I'm very excited about it. This is our third episode. Um, the last episode, we talked to someone who biked across the United States. She had a really really cool story to tell about how and why she did that along with just some good life advice in general. So if you're interested in that at all, you should definitely check that out. Um, This week here soon, we have another person that I met on the road, which was David Sumner, and I'm going to be interviewing him. He works at the 911 hotline, so he has so many incredible stories um, that were way too good not to share. So I had to put them together for you. But before that, I wanted to give you a little update about what I've been doing. So where we left off together in the last podcast was that I was staying at David's house. I was living that RV life, um, (laughs) which is new for me, but I really, really like it. And I was just kind of hanging out and getting some work done. So after that, I went to Pescadero, which is on the coast of California. And I met some people that I met last year when I was traveling. Um, So let me give you a brief history about that because that's an interesting story. So last year I did my first trip with no money um, across the United States. And it was a bike tour. And I had never bike toured before. I had no idea what I was doing. And anyways, by the time I got to California, I thought that I would have everything figured out and I would know what I want to do with my life, and all of those good things, and I didn't. Um, One day, I was cycling, and I was on, like, a back road in California, and one of my tires popped, and I was like, oh, God, I had never fixed a tire, actually, before that trip, and um, I had ridden, like, 500 miles of the whole trail, which, by the way, it's not a trail. It's just on roads. Um... And during that time, I had never had to really fix that on my bike or else people had helped me. I had just been watching videos and stuff. I don't know why I didn't practice before. I guess I was just lazy. But so my tire popped um, and I'm standing on this back road on the side of the road in the ditch and I'm trying to blow up my other tubes to put my tire back together. And I exploded three of them um, and I only had one left. So I'm crying and I'm frustrated and I've been standing there for like 45 minutes um, and I finally get the last one and I was like, yes, it was an amazing moment uh, that I could keep on going. But I had lost so much time doing that that um, it was getting dark and I wasn't going to make it to the destination that I had in mind for that day. And also my host that I didn't know, it was a friend of a friend that was waiting in that destination, never um, messaged or emailed me back or 
texted me or anything like that, so I wouldn't have had a place to go anyways. So I kept biking, and I get into this really small town, and I'm just tired and cold. I was probably hungry, um, and I'm walking through the streets, and I'm just so frustrated. I don't, it's one of those moments where I'm like, what am I doing with my life? I have no idea what I'm doing in this moment, and it was really scary, and so I just broke down crying on the side of the street, uh, and it was in front of a pizza shop. And I didn't realize that. So it was like a scene out of the movie. I looked up. I'm standing by my bike just bawling. And all these people are sitting on an outdoor patio just staring at me. <laughs> like, what is wrong with you? A couple people had passed by before that. And they were just like, are you okay? And I was like, oh, yeah, just kind of looking for a place to stay. And they would tell me places to go that costed money, like campgrounds there. And I was so cold from sweat. I was like, there's no way that I'm camping out tonight. I'm just going to get sick. So I backed my bike up and continued to have my um, little episode talking to my mom on the phone. And it happened to be in front of someone's driveway, which I didn't even know was there. And this couple pulled in and they were really sweet. And they were like, honey, what are you doing? How's it going? Are you okay? And I tried to lie for a very brief moment, but I couldn't. And I just, they looked so parental and sweet and inviting that I just <laughs> lost it. And I started crying and I told them everything. And they were the nicest. They were like, oh, come inside. You can ask people about us. You know, people here know us. We will treat you right and make you food. And you could sleep outside in your tent if you want tonight. Or you can sleep inside and take a shower, blah, blah, blah. They were the sweetest people. So they literally just invited me in off the street, and um, after that, I don't know, I stayed with them a week, two weeks, and they're like my parents now, they're family, and I love them <laughs> unconditionally, two of the most amazing people that I've ever met who just took me in that day, and so more point of the story is that this year I came to work for them because they have a catering company, and... Uh, they were working the Climate Ride for Change tour, which is a bike tour. I think it was like four days. I'm not sure how many miles all the bikers did, but they had a century day in there. Um, they usually did, I think, from like 50 to 70 miles a day. And we would follow them each day and set up meals for them for breakfast and dinner. And I didn't know how much work this was going to be. It was honestly a lot of work. Uh, I had only worked one catering job with them before, so which was a wedding, so I didn't know what it was going to be like, but the first day I met them at a campground, and I met some awesome people that are around my age or a little older or younger, and there was four of us on the crew um, working this bike tour, and they were all so different, and they were all so amazing, and now I'm glad that I have a few more friends, because I really think that they're great. And so if you're listening to this, any one of you that worked on this bike tour, shout out to you. I love you. I had so much fun with you. But um, so our day typically went like this. Like the first day was lunch that we were there. But um, we wake up in the morning early. It was usually around like 4.45 or 4.30 or sometime around then. And we would set up the cooking stations because we were outside most of the time, you know, camping. We'd set up the cooking stations and the tables to put food on, and we would prepare all the food in the morning for breakfast. I think it was like 200 bikers, so it'd be for staff and bikers. Prepare all the food, um, get it set up, 
and then serve people while they eat, and then we'd have to take all the food down, take all the tables down, all the wash all the bowls, all the spoons, load everything back up. So that was a really like hours and hours long process. And then we'd get in the car and we'd drive to the next place, which would usually be like an hour away or so. And everyone would be sleeping inside the car. We would all be dead tired. And then we'd get to the next place and we'd do the same thing for dinner. And then the cycle continued uh, on and on again for each meal, each new day. And I was exhausted by the end. I think we were only getting like four hours of sleep each night. And for me, I have to get like seven or eight hours of sleep. I like to do yoga and um, run and things like that. And I only woke up to do that one day because it was a lot. So for me, I had a hard time with that because I just wasn't practicing as much self-care as usual. But that's okay. It's a good learning experience. So I wanted to share a little bit about that bike tour with you, which was really, really, really cool. Um, I'm glad I got to do that and see that. So this company, or this, not company, this nonprofit, I think they are, is raising money for awareness for climate change. So I will put a link in the bio of this description if you want to check them out. But they do that by doing hikes. And this one was a bike tour. So people have to raise so much money to be able to participate in this bike ride. And then they donate it to different um, foundations of your choice, which is really, really cool. Like I was literally just bawling my eyes out all day and my nose was running and I'm still stuffy from it actually, but I felt really sick. You know, my eyes would get so sore when I touched them because I had touched them so much and my nose was sore and I kept having to put chapstick all over my upper lip and under my nose and constantly blowing my nose. I don't know how many tissues I used. Sorry, trees, but I used tons of tissues. Um, and so it was like, Every time I opened my eyes, I was just looking through water, which was frustrating because I had to, you know, talk to people and prepare food and things like that. But that's okay. Uh, I said that I would never complain about being stuffed up or anything in my face ever again after that because that was super intense. So all in all, I got to see some really beautiful places on that trip. I got to spend time with people I love and all those good things. So I'm excited that I got to share that with you. Now, there was one thing um, during that trip where I definitely had a panic attack um, and freaked out a lot, and it was really, really uncontrollable. Talking to the hosts that I'm staying with right now, and we definitely agreed that mental illness and health is not taken as seriously as it should be. I think sometimes it's hard for people because when we think of someone as sick or hurting or in need, we usually think of physical signs and symptoms, uh, things that we can see in the body, things that we can notice that are very concrete to us. But that's not always the only thing going on with someone. Anxiety and depression and other things like that are very, very real. And, um, it's hard sometimes to talk about that because I know for me, I want to be able to pretend like I can always have my emotions in check and with meditation and yoga and things like that, that I can always control at least how, what I'm thinking about, which contributes to how I'm feeling. And I want to be really responsible and I want to actively try to, feel well and feel whole. But sometimes we just, we literally can't. There's different chemical things in the brain and other things like that. And I definitely probably once a week have one day where 
I suffer from severe anxiety and depression. And um, when I was younger, I think there were definitely times in my life where when I had some health issues, I deal, I was dealing with those on a more spread out basis, but now it's probably like one day a week, which is kind of odd to me, but it is what it is. And um, it can be triggered by different things. And so when I was working this bike tour, I also want to say that this is a wonderful catering company that I was working for. And the two people who, you know, are like my parents that own it are amazing. Seriously, some of the most amazing people in the world. So this has nothing to do with them. Uh, It has to do with me and experiences that I've gone through and different things like that. But I was working the vegan vegetarian table, as most of you probably know by now that I'm vegan and I'm heavy into animal rights. And I was in charge of the vegan vegetarian table, which was awesome. I really liked doing that. And one morning, it was really early in the morning when we got up. And we were working in this small kitchen in this small, like, dining hall area. And, you know, it's also waking up in the morning, not having time to breathe or anything like that. Just literally getting out of the tent with your clothes on and going to work is really hard for me. But... I had to balance, like, what's more important, sleep or getting up to breathe? And at that point, I thought it was sleep. I was probably wrong. And anyways, we were preparing breakfast, and they were making bacon. Now, I have to give you a disclaimer about the word bacon. I hate it (laughs) more than anything. I don't think that I hate anything that I could say, actually. But I do think I hate the word bacon right now and that might be different in the future because hate is so strong so I want to be careful with how I use that but I would put it it's probably the only thing on that list but I'm going to tell you why I have such strong feelings about this word I have such strong feelings because this word is such a lie it is such a lie bacon does not represent the individual at all that we're talking about so what is bacon the question is who is bacon and the answer is individuals, pigs, that usually are alive and running around and curious and intelligent, and they have families and friends, and they're smarter than three-year-old children, and they're just as easy to have around you as dogs, and they're these wonderful beings, so every time we diminish them to the word bacon, we say, no, 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 you're not an individual, you're an object, and that has more to do with us and says more about us then it says about them, because that is so wrong. So bacon is literally the flesh of a dead animal who did not want to die. So this word to me just is so insulting and diminishing and objectifying that I I, I hate hearing it. I hate seeing it, everything about it. Um, and like I said, maybe I'll be able to cope with the word better one day, but that's that's where I am right now. So when I use the word bacon here, I'm using it because that's what other people say and not What I am saying, I see them as individuals, and I see it as dead flesh. I don't, the word bacon doesn't exist like that to me. So anyways, now that that little rant is over, um, I wake up in the morning and I'm going to work, and inside the kitchen and outside it smells like dead pigs roasting, and um, I love pigs. (laughs) I'm close with pigs, and the best way that I can maybe describe this situation to you is that if you have a family dog or cat or whoever you really love like that that you're close to and you walk into a room 
and all you can smell is their flesh burning, and you know that it's them. You know them. You know them well. And you know that people are going to be eating them soon, and their flesh starts to creep inside your nose, and it swells up in your head and in your stomach, and it takes over your whole body. And, you know, I kept trying to walk outside and get fresh air and, you know, only breathing in through my mouth so that I didn't smell it and things like that so that I didn't smell them burning. And it just, I was running back and forth inside and outside, setting things up and trying to think about different things. But I haven't really had this happen to me before, maybe because I haven't seen the most traumatic things in my life. And so no other situation has really been like this. But I have seen um, different factory farms that I have seen inside of holding pens and the videos. And I've seen these things in real life. I've seen pigs suffering and I've been inside some of their pens and not been able to help them all. And I've been in places that just literally look and feel like hell when you get there. And all these places started popping up in my mind uh, watching these pigs suffer and not have enough food and water, watching these baby pigs be dragged around and beaten, and watching these beautiful animals being prodded with electric, electric prods onto slaughter trucks, and watching them try to struggle to turn around and make noises, and they're screaming, and they're trying to get off the belt that leads them up to the slaughter truck. They know what's happening. They know. And so all these images started flashing in my mind, and usually, you know, I can think of something else, or I can breathe, or I can ground myself and work my way out of it, but I couldn't. It was like an instant movie on replay, so I probably stood outside for 15 minutes just trying to breathe that, you know, that gasp for air, and obviously I was crying, but the breathing was the scariest part. I felt completely out of control. I felt very hopeless. I felt like there was nothing I could do, and I felt out of control of my body. And that's a very scary feeling for me because I very much like to be in touch with my body, and I wasn't. In that moment, I felt like I had zero control over my brain, my thoughts, my emotions, my feelings, or my body, and that was that added on to the terrifying part for me. Um, I also have a very easy time feeling how others feel, so taking on their feelings and empathy and I just took on their total panic and fear too in that moment which might be like some of you might be like what that's so hokey pokey I don't know what that means but that's okay just know that uh sometimes it's really easy for me to just pick up on other people's individuals feelings and in that moment I felt like I picked up on a thousand and they were multiplied inside of me so that was a really scary moment and the people I was working for came outside and calmed me down and, you know, talked to me and things like that when they could after a while because it was crunch time at that moment. So that was a really scary thing. And I often forget sometimes that other things are going to come up during travel. Sometimes I think that the only time I'm going to be freaked out or worried or super sad or scared during travel is when I don't have a place to stay. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know these things that I like to know ahead of time. But I often forget that I'm still living my life when I travel and other things come up and animal rights is something that I'm very passionate about and just not hurting others. And so this is also going to come up during travel and be hard. But that's a good travel reminder is that, you know, we often think we're going to worry about this set 
of things, this preset set of things, and other things can come up. So having a way to deal with that and work with that and work through that is really important. So if you struggle with any of these things and you'd ever like to talk about it, feel free to reach out to me. By no means am I a psychologist or anything like that, but I think just having that support and being able to relate is really helpful. And so some things that help me usually work through that are breathing exercises, yoga. I have a hard time reaching out in the moment to talk to other people, but I've found that that can be really helpful. Uh, Usually I just don't have any energy to do that, and I'm spiraling in my own little world, and I don't want to reach out. But I found that that's very helpful, having people that you can feel supported by and talk to. And finding other things, activities that help you work through emotions and thoughts and things like that. And then also just not judging yourself for feeling like this, for feeling out of control, but just noticing what you're thinking and what you're feeling in that moment and working from there is so helpful because the more we judge ourselves and the more that we um, tell ourselves that we shouldn't be feeling this way, the more frustrated we're probably going to get. If you're feeling that way, you're feeling that way. And there's probably a reason. So take the time to really explore that and think about it so that you can move forward or you can move in a different direction that you want to go. So anyways, I just wanted to share that experience with you. Um, And hopefully, you know, if you're feeling like that ever, that anxiety or panic or depression or things like that, sadness, loneliness, know that you're not alone and many people suffer from that. And it doesn't make it any better, but that means that there are things you can do to hopefully help yourself. And there are other people that also want to help you. So please, please, please just remember that. And I'm always here if anyone wants to talk about anything. And also to activists, you know, we all have to really support each other and care about each other because we can definitely reach a point where we're burnt out and where we feel hopeless. It's a hard, hard job and it's a hard thing to do to constantly be aware of suffering and pain and constantly be trying to fix it because not any one of us can fix it all right now in this moment. And that's a really frustrating thought when you have your whole heart in something. So just a reminder to take care of yourself. Know that different things are going to come up when you travel because you're learning so much all the time and doing new things. And for activists to take care of yourself, especially um, when you're starting to feel tired or burnt out, it's okay to step back and take a break. So I'm going to put the link up to this article that I wrote on that, which also talks about a dream that I had before that. So the article is short. It's an easy read. It's interesting. I definitely recommend sharing it if you're an activist or sharing it with someone you know, just to let them know that they're not alone and that um, these things happen. So I'm going to put that up. Thank you for listening to that story. And now we have a guest on here, David Sumner which is my friend's dad, like I said, now my friend. And he is the person who answers 911 calls, and he's also done many other things. Um, So I'm going to let you listen to this really, really awesome interview so that we can learn through David and just have a new perspective on everything. Okay, so thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, My name is Caitlin, and I have David with me, which is my friend's dad, now one of my friends. Um... But if you could just tell us your name, and if you want to, how many years you've been around on this earth. Not mandatory. <laughs> <laughs> I'm but, proud of it. No, yay, good. Uh, my name's David Sumner, and I'm 53 years old. 
and you're 53 years old. And just as like a warm-up um, to get to know you a little bit, I always like to ask, how would your closest friend describe you? Uh, my closest friend would describe me as <laughs> quiet and sarcastic. Quiet and sarcastic. And how would you describe you? Quiet. Sarcastic. It's sarcastic. Okay. <laughs> I always like to see if that matches up. That's pretty funny. So I've been staying with David, um, I think it's been like four or five days now, and it's been so much fun. Um, he lives in an RV, and now I really, really like the RV life. But a couple things that I wanted to do an interview with David on was um, his job, and he's had quite a bit of travel experience and hiking experience. Um, so both of them have been really interesting to learn about. But the first thing that I wanted to touch on was your job. And could you just explain to everyone what you do? Yeah, um, I'm a 911 dispatcher. So I work for the, the county and I dispatch uh, police, fire and ambulance, um, which means I answer phones, I talk on the radio, I do whatever needs to be done for uh, two different counties that work together in one dispatch center. Yeah. And like you were telling me, it's not the most normal thing to have all the dispatchers in one place? It's pretty rare. Usually, a uh, police department will have dispatchers, or a fire department, or an ambulance. It's rare to combine them all into one. Yeah. And it's even more rare to have two entire counties contract together and have a dispatch center that does all the disciplines of police, fire, and ambulance. Right. And call taking, and... Uh, and you do like a few different things, or you have, correct? What all have you done? Uh, well, as dispatching, um, I, I do all of that. I've been a, a senior dispatcher or a lead. It's kind of like a, a low-level supervisor. I've done that. Um, I'm an incident dispatcher, which means that if there's a large fire or a law enforcement incident or hostage negotiation type issue yeah. or even search and rescue, I actually go out into the field and work and help the, the staff organize the event and, and handle communications for them in the field. So you see a lot of things then when you go out with yes, them. Yes. You're not just taking the calls. And how long have you done this job? Um, at the current place I'm at now, I've been there 21 years. 21 years, okay. And before that, I was at another county for three years. So I've been doing the 911 dispatching for that long. Yeah. But before that, I did other things that were all in the similar field, and okay. I've been doing that for 35 years. Wow, so I'm sure that you have some stories, as I've heard some of them, and I was so excited that I couldn't not <laughs> interview you to hear about them. Um, but before we get into some stories like that, can you just tell us what your daily schedule is kind of like? And I know your sleep schedule is different, too. Mm -hmm. So, um, in, in a perfect world, uh, uh, my job would be fully staffed, and we would just have a regular uh, I work a 12-hour uh, schedule, so I work 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., yeah. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and then one Wednesday a month, I work an eight-hour day, and that's it. I have, in theory, four days off every week, right? Um, or four days off most weeks, um, but because of overtime and staff shortages and all of that, I work that schedule plus um, as much as 30, 40, or 50 hours of overtime of pay period. Yeah. Whew, that's a lot of hours. I don't know if I could be able to sleep like that and wake up and 
move in the world. But what is your probably most common occurrence that you get calls for? Is there one thing that kind of sticks out more than everything else? The, the most common complaint is domestic violence. Okay. Yeah. And how do you usually handle those calls? Do you send someone straight out or... Uh, you send somebody straight out if they're available, but, you know, if you have 10 domestic violence calls and five officers, then you got to deal with what's most important right. and the highest priority. So then is it just kind of figuring it out? Do you have to p figure out and choose what's the highest priority? Uh -huh. Yeah. Oh, as, gosh. As uh, the person that answers the phone or the call taker, yeah. we have to triage the call or, or place it in order of importance and priority based on the other calls that are going on. And then it also depends on who calls us. If you get a call from, you know, the female half who's being beaten up, um, you have to treat the call one way. Yeah. If the, the male half who's doing the beating up is the one that calls you, you've got to treat it another way. Right. And that's not to say that it's always the male suspect and the female victim. It goes right. both ways. So you just have to be really uh, empathetic and, and treat everybody fairly, even if they're the suspect, even if they're the bad guy. Right. Oh, that would be hard. Do you feel a lot of pressure when you're trying to decide what calls to take first? No, I just take whatever one hits, you know, whatever one gets there first. And, yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's like everything in life. You know, once you learn it, um, it's just a system. Yeah. Right. And, uh, the the pressures of my work aren't so much generated at work. They're just you know kind of self-imposed difficulties. So. Right. Do you mean at the end of the day when you're like thinking over things? Yeah, or? yeah. It's uh, it can be complicated. You can hear things that no normal person should have to deal with or hear. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you got to go home and forget about it. Right. And you know, hug your kids or you know, talk to your family and, and not take out your frustrations and angers. Yeah. Uh, from your job at, at home. Do you have a way that you kind of like to let off steam? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I do. I, I hang out with my kids as much as possible. Which they're, they're all, awesome, by the way. Well, and, and they're all grown now, so that, that changes things a little bit. But, yeah. Um, and I go camping and hiking and uh, as much as I can. Because I work in a community that's at the ocean, I spend a lot of time at the beach. Right. That is a great way to decompress. Uh, so one of the first things that I wanted to ask you about, or maybe like one or two times, the top ones that you remember, that you remember participating in saving someone's life when they called. Maybe the two that stand out to you the most or that you like to think about the most. Okay. Um, well, there's, there's hundreds of best calls and hundreds of worst calls yeah. just because there's so many. It's hard to pick one that's like the, the very best. Yeah. Um, I do know there was one where uh, a three-year-old was choking on food and uh, his six-year-old brother called 911. Oh, gosh. And we talked him through the whole process of uh, helping his brother breathe again. And, you know, as we, we got the, the food out of his airway, and this is all over the phone, so I don't see any of this. Right. It's all just what you can hear and talk to people with. Um, as we got the child breathing again and got the obstruction out of their airway, the mom came in and grabbed the phone and said, what are you doing and who is this? And I told her, this is the 911 ambulance dispatcher. Yeah. And your child wasn't breathing. Your you know, other child just saved their life. Right. So that's that's really rewarding when you can do that kind of thing because otherwise it would have been the mom picking up the phone and saying, why is my baby blue and why is right. my baby dying? Right. So that, that's wow. really rewarding. 
That I'm sure that is. Is there any other time that you can think of that you really remember thinking like, wow, that was a close one. And we, I'm sure there's so many of those, but <laughs> that was a close one. And I'm really glad that I answered the phone and got to talk them through yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, there, there are. Um, um, there's, you know, things like uh, just a few weeks ago, I answered the phone and, and a guy said that his wife was in labor. And um, within a couple minutes of answering the phone, she delivered a baby. So we got to deliver the baby over the phone and you know, wow. we had to tell him how to make sure the baby's breathing and how to take care of the mom because she's, you know, needing assistance as well. Yeah. I'm sure there's so many things that you've done now. Save people from choking, delivered a baby, which have been different. How do you think it makes you feel um, doing it over the phone versus, like, being there and actually doing it? Is that a strange I feeling? Think, yeah, it, it is. I think it's more difficult. Um, before my life as a dispatcher, I was a paramedic. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, you get to see things and unfortunately smell things and touch things. and um, But but you experience it and you have the whole picture. You are aware of everything that's going on. Right. Versus over the phone, you only have your ears and you can only hear it. And so you have to form a picture through the answers to your questions. And if you don't write the, and if you don't ask the right questions, you're not going to get the right answers. Right. So it's, I think it's more difficult uh, for people that are trying to um, do it over the phone. And if you uh, take somebody who's never dispatched before, yeah, or never worked a, you know, in an ambulance or a healthcare field before, and you teach them how to be a dispatcher, they can be a really great dispatcher. Right. But if you take somebody that's got experience, either as a police officer or a firefighter or a paramedic, when they come into dispatch, they want to keep doing that former job. So they think oh. like that. And sometimes it affects them negatively. It makes it more difficult to do the job because you want to overtreat. You want to right. you want to be the firefighter. You want to be the cop or you want to be the, the paramedic. Right. And um, you can't do that over the phone. Are there a lot of people that come from, like, being a firefighter or paramedic to doing the dispatch? There's a lot that try. There's a lot. There's not a lot that succeed. Yeah. Um, it, they tend to go the other direction. So we've got, you know, in, in my dispatch center, we've got, uh, you know, between 40 and 50 people, depending on how the staffing is. Yeah. And of that 40 or 50 people, there's only, like, two or three that have done anything other than dispatching that oh. are successful. Wow. But yet, for all the agencies we dispatch for and all the departments we dispatch for, there's you know five or six uh, police officers and paramedics out there that used to be dispatchers. Right. So it, it goes one direction more easily. Than or the other, the other one. Yeah. Oh wow. So after we talked about you know two times that you saved lives, do you remember one time? I don't know if you're ever like scared there. But there was a call where you were scared for the people or I'm sure you have to stay calm. So that might not be your first feeling, but where someone else might be really scared taking that call. Uh, yeah, there was one a, a couple of years ago where um, it was I think it was Christmas morning or Christmas Eve, one of those two things. And uh, you know, super early in the morning, nobody was awake. It was like three or four in the morning. And somebody saw flames and smoke coming out of the house. Yeah. And so they called 911, and they were banging on the door trying to get somebody out. And uh, our officers responded. The police officers got there first before the fire department. And the officer went inside, and he found uh, a child in what turned out to be a garage. The garage was on fire. Yeah. So he tried to get her out, and... 
it was really scary on my end having to hear, you know, screams and hear people crying and then hear the officer that I had just sent there go inside a burning room. Right. And then he didn't talk on the radio. So, you know, I was worried, is my officer okay? Is my, right. you know, are my firefighters okay? And the paramedics, um, it turned out he was fine. He got burned a little bit. He rescued the little girl and saved her life, pulled her out of this burning building. But everything depends on everything else. You know, right. if, if the neighbor hadn't called and if the officer hadn't got there quickly, um, it would not have been a, a good outcome. Right. Oh, gosh. Yeah. That, I don't know what that's like, but I would imagine <laughs> it'd be hard listening to that it, it is. on the other end of the phone. Yeah. Um, so what's another, I know, I don't know if you want to tell that story that you just told me about that restaurant there, but that one sounded really scary. Um, yeah, there's there's a restaurant in the town where I work that, um, the, it's a town where there's a lot of gang members. Yeah. And there were some gang members that got into an argument and started shooting, and it was a very... Uh, in the restaurant. In the restaurant, uh, during dinner, and there was a lot of innocent people that got hurt. Right. And some died, and um, it was just a really, you know, tragic situation. But it also was very fast. You know, it, it was uh, it came on very fast, and the police department got out there pretty quickly and took care of what they needed to take care of. But yeah, um, those things over the phone, it's hard because nobody wants to be calm and answer your questions. They just want you to send help now. Right. So occasionally, the, the picture that you form in your head of what's going on is worse than it really is. Yeah. But occasionally it's exactly the same or, you know, not as bad as it really was. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. I try to imagine those when you tell those stories and we pass those places. Yeah. Um, do you ever, is there one call that you remember more vividly than anything else? Or is there just too many? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's some, there's, there's like some good ones and there's some bad ones. Um, in the course of my career, I've, I've had the, uh, fortunate uh, duty, I guess, of working when uh, a couple of police officers died. Yeah. And uh, the worst thing about that is to, you have to keep doing your job. You can't walk away and cry or walk away and have time to yourself. Right. Because it's so upsetting. You just have to keep working through it. And knowing that, you know, this tragedy has occurred and yet you have to keep keep dealing with it and keep working at it. That's kind of tough. I mean, that was probably one of the hardest uh, calls that I've had to deal with. So you um, were on the phone? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, knowing that the people that were out there were your friends and your your co-workers and uh, to know that they're not not coming home. So that was was difficult. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I'm sure that that's really... I didn't even think of it on that end, too. I always think about the other people Uh that are calling in usually have the trauma, but I guess that could be anyone that's there. It, it can be. And, you know, we're, um, as, as a dispatcher, you're, you're sending police officers into situations where they're in harm's way and they could get hurt or killed. And same with the firefighters. They go in and they, they deal with uh, rescues or medicals or fires. Right. And sometimes they get hurt. And that's probably one of the more like traumatic parts of my job. Yeah. Is having to know that somebody that you work with or work with or somebody that's your friend is hurt and there's nothing you can do about it. Right. Right. And you're just there listening and talking and stuff. Oh my. 
So on the opposite end, is there one of the most like rewarding calls that you remember? Um, you know, the delivering babies is always fun. It's yeah. always super, super rewarding. Um, sometimes the most rewarding calls are the simplest ones. You know, uh, a child will dial nine one one because they're playing with the phone. Yeah. And so then their mom comes on the phone, and, and I had one where, and it was it was very satisfying and very rewarding. But uh, the, the child was playing with the phone, hung up. We called him back, and then the mom picked up the phone, and I told her, I said, "You're." kids playing on the phone do you have an emergency and we went yeah that. and she started yelling at this child and she's like don't you ever dial 911 and, and just berating the child in the background so i said wait a minute hold on that's not how we need to react right you know if if you're laying on the ground and choking your child needs to know how to dial 911 so i talked to the mom and educated her about you know the proper use of it yeah and then i got the child on the phone and i talked to the kid for you know, a, a few minutes, and reminded them, you know, asked them if they knew what the phone was for, and they said yes, they learned it in school, and they were just playing uh, the same way the teacher had them dial 911 in class, Right. but in the class, because the teacher wasn't really dialing 911, the teacher would say, okay, now you're going to dial 911, okay, everybody knows how to dial 911, right? Okay, now hang up the phone. Yeah. And so the child was doing exactly what the teacher had taught them. Right. And by educating the child and talking to the mom, the entire classroom ended up coming up for a tour of the dispatch center. Oh. And getting a better education on how to dial 911. Right. And so that was that is cool. really cool. So did you get to see them when they I met them all. came yeah, in then? That was, that was fun. I got to meet the whole class. Oh, that is really fun. And by the way, we're driving down the road right now, and it is so pretty over to the left of us. There's, like, um, purple and yellow flowers, and it's all green. And then the water looks, like, bluish purple, and the sky is bright blue with, like, purplish blue clouds over top. But, like, that's like, squirrel! Get, oh, getting off topic, but it's really pretty over there. Um, are there any other calls that you remember that you'd like to share that you're like, wow, people should, people might really like to hear about this one? Um, you know, it, there, there's been a lot of calls and so many calls over the years, but um, I would just say that, uh, you know, I've, I've had a, a long career and some of the calls are, um, you know, very satisfying and, and some are not so satisfying. But, yeah. Um, no specific calls come to mind. Yeah. Uh, you know, That's okay. <laughs> are there any, like, really weird calls that you get where you're like, what? Um, yeah, there's been uh people put places put things in places they shouldn't be and they call for an ambulance yeah <laughs> um, things made out of glass or things made out of wood or fruit right things. um uh, <laughs> other than that there's uh we had a guy down 911 um, last week from the back of a police car after he'd been arrested yeah and tell us that he was being kidnapped so it wasn't until we heard the police officer yell in the background, what do you think you're doing? Get off the phone. Yeah. And we realized that he was the person that the officer had just arrested. That he actually got arrested. Exactly. Wow. Was he handcuffed? How did he get his... He, he was handcuffed. He slipped out of his handcuffs. And uh, the officer didn't search him. So he had a cell phone in his pocket. Yeah. That we didn't know about. Right. And he dialed 911 to say that he'd been kidnapped. <laughs> what did he think? The police cars are going to come and get him out of the police car? Well, they were on their way, yeah. Oh, they were, wow. They were on their way. 
Oh gosh, that's kind of funny. When people call you and they have things in places where they shouldn't be, do you have to instruct them on how to get them out, or do you have to tell them to go to the hospital? If if yes, there you just treat first aid. If they're bleeding, you got to control the bleeding. Or yeah. If they're trouble breathing, you got to deal with that. But, right. Uh, we try to be uh, low impact. We try not to give too many instructions on how to, you know, treat somebody or do something. Although, you know, if it's a medical call, there's a lot of uh, instructions that we can give. We can, yeah. You can give instructions on somebody having a heart attack and CPR and delivering a baby and controlling bleeding, that kind of thing. Right. Um, people just doing dumb things. Um, sometimes we just kind of get to laugh at it. As long as they're safe and, and you can keep them in one place so that we can find them and get the help to them, then you're okay. Right. Oh, wow. I'm sure you hear a variety of things then during the day. Is there a certain time where you get more calls that are more serious? Or is it just kind of throughout the day everything's um, different? Almost all calls can happen anytime, but it, they, they seem to have a pattern. Um, in the morning, uh, you tend to get the more administrative kind of things, like somebody broke into my car last night yeah. or stole my bicycle. Um, and then in the evenings, you get more traffic-related things, you know, car crash and, you know, bicycle is hit because they're going for a walk and, and they're going for a ride and it's about to get dark. Yeah. Um, and then as the night goes on and it gets darker and later, uh, people start drinking, people start arguing. That's when the domestics happen. Yeah. Um, and then late at night, you get alcohol-related calls and party complaints. And it just kind of goes in a cycle. And it's um, the time of day uh, greatly affects the types of calls that you get. Right, right. Oh, gosh. Wow, so you kind of know the pattern a little bit of what might yeah. be coming during the day you can kind of predict it yeah oh wow has there um ever been a time where you've had to call 911 and someone's answered that you know <laughs> i have had to call 911 um i've had to call 911 either to report a car accident that i've seen while driving home uh or a drunk driver um mm -hmm. i've seen a couple times you know crimes happen uh, shoplifters and things like that so i've had to tell them right um, so yeah every once in a while but when, when somebody answers and you know them, uh, you have to, it, it's not a social call. So right. as much as you want to say, hey, it's me and, you know, what about, you know, what we're going to do next Friday night or whatever, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you just can't do that. So right. even though, and, and I think most dispatchers recognize that, you call up and, and you could say, you know, if I have to call, for example, the highway patrol because I'm reporting a car accident and the person that answers the phone says, oh, hi, Dave, and, you know, how's it going? I say, you know, reporting a crash, and then all of a sudden it gets serious. Yeah. You just, you take care of business. Right. And then maybe at the end of that, as they're sending, uh, you know, police officers and the fire department paramedics to this crash, then you have a more casual talk. Right. Um, the other thing to remember is that everything we do is recorded. Yeah. So don't say anything that you're not willing yeah, to just say, say in front of the judge and jury. Right. That's a good point. I forgot about that. Yeah, that's happened before, too. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Has there ever been a time where you're like, oh, I wish I didn't say that? All the time. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> so what's one thing that you've really learned from your job that you can take away? I'm sure there's many things, but... Um, I've learned just to be a better person. I've learned that uh, no matter what your circumstances are, you know, whether even the, the, you know, you're homeless or whatever your education is, just to be grateful and thankful for what you have. Yeah. There's somebody that has it a lot worse. Right, so right. That's that's my biggest thing is 
and I try to raise my family that way as well as, um, you know, you may not live in the nicest house, you may not have the nicest things or the most money, but money is certainly far from everything. And, you know, just you know, because of what I get to see or have to see, um, just be thankful for everything that you have. Yeah, when you come home at the end of the day. Exactly. Oh, that's a good message. Would you have any advice to others if they wanted to do your job or they were thinking about it? Uh, just do your research. Go online and find a, a local police department or a place next uh, nearby and go in and talk to them and, and sit with them and listen to the calls yeah. and do your research because it's it's a it can be a very rewarding job um, and, or it can be you know, your worst nightmare. It just You have to make sure that it's something you want to do right. and then just wanting to do it isn't quite enough. You have to make sure it's something that you know you're, you're capable of doing um, yeah there's different levels of dispatching there's the smaller you know police department with two people on duty and then there's the bigger ones with you know 40 or 50 people on duty at a time right so if, if it's something you're interested in do your research go visit somebody go talk to somebody and uh, you know one of the biggest skills that you need as a dispatcher to be successful is you have to be able to multitask so work on your typing, work on talking, work on uh, doing multiple things at the same time. Yeah. Oh, wow. And then also you have to be able to do all the mental things, right? And the emotional, exactly. being able to handle things at the end of the day. Yeah. And if, if you're a person that gets upset, you know, the sight of blood doesn't necessarily matter. But if you're a, a person that, you know, this is kind of gross. But if you can't listen to somebody, you know, vomit on the other end of the phone and yeah. your wits about you and keep talking and stay calm and keep asking them questions... This probably isn't the job for you. Yeah, <laughs> definitely sounds like it would not be the job for you. So thank you so much for telling me about that. That's awesome. I've loved to hear these stories. Um, some of them have been really surprising <laughs> and sad. Oh, was there one last story, if you have one? Was there any call that you got that you were really surprised on how things end up? Or it really just caught you off guard? Like, what? Um, yeah, there's some because we live by the ocean. Um, there was one just a couple nights ago yeah. where we got a call in the middle of the night and somebody was reporting that they saw either a dead whale or uh, an overturned boat floating near the wharf yeah. in, in one of the towns that they've been around. And we sent everybody out there fully expecting, because we've had uh, lately, just because of the weather and the, the rains and maybe the climates, we've had uh, several sharks beach themselves on our beaches and die. Yeah. We had some very large whales. One whale was 90 feet. Came on wow. the beach and died. Um, you know, these huge animals. And we don't know why. You know, they're, they're dying. Some, you know, I think one was hit by a ship, so it died because of that. But they don't necessarily know why this is happening. So to get a report of a dead whale is not unusual. You know, it's, it's unusual that it washes up on our beach. Mm-hmm. But to actually get a call of that is not that unusual. So the, everybody went out, the police department went out, the fire department went out. And what the fire uh, captain or battalion chief found was actually really surprising. And he said, no, it's not an upside down boat. No, it's not a dead whale. In fact, it's a live whale. And because of the full moon, it's coming to the surface, rolling over on its back and feeding whether it's shrimp or sardines or whatever in the water, yeah. it was eating, and then it would roll back over again and dive down. And then it would come back up again, and it did that several times. And he said that that was a, a once-in-a-lifetime 
thing to be able to see yeah. that close to shore. Usually they do this out in the open water. Right. But this whale was within, you know, several feet or several yards of the wharf and, you know, the beaches. It was really close to right. the beach. Oh, that would be so special to watch. I'm trying to imagine that as you talk about it. So now I wanted to switch gears just for a little bit because I know you've done quite a bit of hiking. Um, and that you still continue to hike. Wow, this is really pretty here where we are. There's beach on the left. Or right, yeah, that's my left. And on the right, there's mountains um, with so many trees. And there's like smoke, roll, not smoke, but fog rolling over that looks like smoke because it's so foggy. And it's like dark on the right and it's super clear on the left, which is really funny because that's like the bluest light blue sky that I've seen in a while. It's seriously gorgeous here. Um, oh, which What highway are we on? Or this we, is Highway 1. This is Highway 1, and okay. we just passed an area called Waddell Creek that goes all the way up to Boulder Creek, which is the mountains. Where okay. You can hike and, and have a good time there. And then on the other side of us is the ocean. It's uh, surf as far as you can see. Oh, it is so pretty here. I wish that I could, like, pop an image in everyone's head listening <laughs> so that they could see what it's like. So maybe I'll have to take some pictures. Um, but I know, so you've done... What are the two main hikes that you've done? There are um, two bigger hikes? I did a large piece of the Appalachian Trail. Okay. And I hiked that one summer. Um, and I, I did several hundred miles. I went from uh, Asheville, North Carolina, all the way up into Maine at the end. Yeah. And I, I did that by myself. Um, so I did that hike. That was a lot of fun. How old were you on that one? Um, 17. You were 17. And how did you decide or think of to hike this trail? Uh, I had always liked hiking and camping, and I'd done a lot of it uh, when I was younger. I was in the Boy Scouts, and just hiking was a passion of mine. And I just happened to have the summer off one year, and it was uh, at a time when I was in the process of moving from uh, the East Coast to the West Coast. And before I moved, I decided I'd go for a hike. So right. <laughs> That's a long hike to decide to go for. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Um, so how many miles, I'm sorry, you might have said that, did you do on that trail, do you remember? You know, I don't even remember the exact mileage. Um, the whole trail itself is, is uh, several hundred miles long. Okay. But I hiked the portion from North Carolina up into Maine. Maine, okay. Yeah. And was it different than what you expected it might be? or? Uh, I expected bigger mountains because I'd been in California before, so I was used to, you know, mountains that are 10, 14,000 feet high. Yeah. Um, the Appalachian Trail, it's certainly beautiful mountains. But they don't have the altitude that the mountains have in California. Yeah. But they're they're equally beautiful in their own way. They're equally uh, remote and desolate, also. Right. There's there's places where you don't see another person for you know, days while you're hiking. Yeah. What's that like? Not seeing another person for days while you're hiking. Um, I I am a bit of a loner sometimes, I guess. But, yeah. Um, I like it. I like just being able to reflect and think about you know what you've accomplished and where you want to go and it just helps me kind of reset and think more clearly so yeah. you know some people panic when they're alone in the woods or get bored or you know don't like themselves when they're alone but yeah um, I just find it really relaxing and it's a way to you know make sure that I check in with myself and, and mm -hmm. see if I'm where I want to be in life and what I'm doing right that's so much time to either think or not think. So what's your schedule like kind of when you're on the trail? If you could quickly run us through a day of 
what it might be like? Um, I try to, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm camping or backpacking, I try to wake up as early as I can. And, uh, you know, I, with backpacking food or camping food, usually breakfast is a really light snack almost, fruit or, you know, oatmeal or something, then I hit the trail early and hike until, you know, you take occasional breaks, but I, I like to hike as long as I can and then stop early, uh, you know, for lunch. Mm-hmm. And then when I find a place if I'm going to camp out for the night, uh, you know, stop, make dinner and, and try to get to bed before the sun goes down. So a lot of people, when they go camping, will, you know, stay up and party at the campsite late and stuff and yeah i'd rather get some sleep <laughs> so i can get on the trail i'd love to see the sun rise oh on okay the trail, and i'd love to see the sun set on the trail but it, between that i try to get some rest right definitely do some people not rest as much when they're on the trail yeah some people um just stay up too late at night and, and you know and sleep in in the morning and they don't accomplish as many miles on the trail yeah that day um, i mean i think a lot of people they sleep whatever they're going to sleep and I tend to not get as much sleep as most people. Um, if I get six hours of sleep, I'm super happy. And if I get right. eight hours of sleep, I'm tired right. because I've gotten too much sleep sometimes. Whew, that's, that's so different if I don't get eight hours of sleep. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Um, but are there any stories that you really remember from the trail uh, that stick out to you? Like you saw an animal or you had a scary moment where you thought you were stuck or anything like that? Um yeah, I, I uh, well, a couple. I've seen I've seen bears on the trail before. I've never been chased by a bear, thank goodness. Yeah. But um, I was followed by a bear briefly. And I had a minor freak out moment, but a minor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I stopped and, and didn't stare right at it and just waited until he lost interest and walked away. Yeah. Um, so there's been the bears. Um, I, I have been lost. Um, and there's probably nothing scarier than being out in the middle of the wilderness and not knowing where you are, right. the direction you're headed, or where you came from. Um, so this is, I've always learned to take a map with me and read the map and use my compass and, and navigate that way. And nowadays they have, you know, GPS and everything else, but a GPS isn't going to work down in a canyon right. um, where you can't see the stars, so it's not going to work. I've had a compass break before. Oh. Probably one of the scariest things on the Appalachian Trail was my compass, you know, cracked and fell apart. And so for three or four days, I just had to depend on, you know, which side is the sun rising on and where it's setting. Oh my gosh. And then where's the moon coming up, where's the moon going down. Yeah. That's how I figured out where I was going. And if you didn't know that, do you think you would have just been stuck out there or? Um, yeah, I mean, eventually somebody would have found me, but, uh, you know, I certainly wouldn't have found my way out on my own right. very easily. Ooh, that would, I think that's one of my worst fears, because I want to hike, but I'm like, ooh. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's really beautiful. Now in front of us, quick update going down the road still. Um, like, the, there's the water line. It's all over the place, and there's a lighthouse, and it's just beautiful. The sky is so blue. It's and there's yellow um, flowers on the right side. So it's all greens and yellows and blues. That is so beautiful. And the white from the waves. Wow. Um, okay, back to it, Kaylin. <laughs> I'll get carried away. So what was one of your diff- most difficult moments? Was that probably one of the most difficult moments? Or have you had ones that were a little harder than that? Uh, a difficult moment. I 
spilled a pot of boiling hot chocolate on my foot and into my boot. Yeah. And I was about 30 miles away from my car. Yeah. And so uh, my first reaction was to take off the boot. But then I realized once my foot swelled up from the burn, uh, I wasn't going to be able to get my boot back on. Right. So I then turned around and poured cold water into my boot to stop the burning. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then once I, I regained my composure, uh, decided that I had to leave my boot on, wet and sticky and all, yeah. and hike out. And I did. And uh, you know, I still have a scar on the top of my foot from that burn. But um, the doctor, once I got back and went to the doctor, he told me that if I had taken the boot off, um, there would have probably been a massive infection and, you know, I would have had a lot more damage. But as it was, uh, I ended up with a burn uh, scar on top of my foot. Yeah. And that was about it. No long-term consequences. But that was scary because, you know, when you're hiking that far away from people, you don't, uh, you don't realize if you need help, how long the help is away. Right. You know, if you have an asthma attack or a heart attack or something on the trail. No one's there. No one's there. And if you're not traveling with somebody, you know, it's, it's a really, could be a potentially really dangerous situation. Right. Woo! No 911. You can't call 911 for anything. What are some of your most rewarding moments that you've had hiking? Any trail? Yeah, no, just uh, the views. You know, the, the views and, and I think uh, appreciating nature and seeing the, the power of, of our planet and all it has to offer. Yeah. Um, you know, that's one of the most rewarding things. Um, I've come across people on the trail that they were lost and I was able to help them out. Yeah. Um, I've come across people on the trail that specifically, you know, that lived in the area and their weekend uh, version of excitement was to take a bunch of uh, food and drinks in a cooler and down to the trail and hike in and hand it out to hikers. Oh, that's awesome. That is so awesome. They call them uh, trail angels. Trail angels. And some of the best times I've had were meeting people that were absolute strangers right. and sharing a meal and, and laughing and, and hanging out for a little while then you go on and they go back home and for them it's very rewarding and for you know a hungry hiker that just has somebody else and hand them food and water it's, it's yeah. tremendously you know, satisfying. Right, I've been in situations before, especially last year traveling, where I'm like, I could really use this right about now, and someone shows up, and I'm like, that is amazing. The power of the universe. Yes, the power of the universe, the law of attraction. Um, So how have these hikes basically changed or molded your life in some way? Uh, Throughout my life, I've moved a lot, like uh, more than most normal people, and it helps me have one common thing that I love that I can do anywhere. Yeah. You know, um, I would like to hike, uh, and it's a goal of mine. I mean, I've, I've been to Europe, but I would like to hike on every continent. Oh, uh, that's, that's one a good of my goal. goals. Is, um, I have, I've done hiking in California. I've done hiking on the, you know, Oregon, Washington, and the East Coast of the United States, but I want to hike in Spain, and I want to hike in Portugal, and, and all around the, the world. Right. So, um, that's you know, that's my next big thing that I want to do. That's an awesome goal. I'm excited to see. I'll have to keep <laughs> updated. Come back to a second interview yeah. after you've hiked everything. Uh, yeah, 
you, you meet me in Spain and we'll go hike the Sierras in Spain. Okay, as long as I have someone to go with because I'd get lost by myself, <laughs> even though it's a goal. Did you, would you have any advice for anyone thinking about hiking a really long trail or that have, I guess, never even hiked before? Uh, start small. Go camp in your backyard and then, you know, go for weekend day trips. Go find a trail near you and, and just, you know, take a little day pack. And, you know, you need to do a little research. You need to ter- carry certain things with you, a first aid kit and some water and stuff like that. And always carry the clothing for whatever climate you might get into, you know. If you go out on a sunny day and it starts raining and you don't have a raincoat, you're going to get wet and cold. Right. Um, but but there's enough uh, places, even in your own community, no matter where you live, where you can go hike. And if you're afraid of you know hiking five miles or ten miles, then you know find a, a bus that can bring you back home and hike along the bus route. And, oh. You know, and, and when you yeah. get tired of walking, get on the bus and go back home. Right. That's a really really good idea. Um, have you found, just a couple last quick questions, but have you found that you feel different, say, if you're going out to hike a few miles versus if you know you're going to be hiking for the next 60 days or whatever that may be? Absolutely. I found that, you know, if you're just going out for a quick, you know, day hike or, you know, overnight or something like that, um, it's like when you go on vacation, for me, uh, it takes me two or three days to stop thinking of work. Yeah. And it takes me two or three days more from that to actually start relaxing and know that I'm on vacation. Right. So uh, I find that the shorter hikes, almost as soon as you start them, you're thinking about when you're going to end them and where you're going to yes. end them. Yes, yes. Um, I definitely know that. I think that I just, I do it with no schedule. So the longer hikes, you know that you're giving yourself 10 days to do something. And, you know, five days in, if you haven't made it halfway, then you need to consider going back the other direction. But, right. Um, there's no stress that way. You know, as long as you uh, know how to make your food or know how to survive and, and have the skills to do that. And these are little things you can you can learn about online. You can read books. But um, all the books in the world won't help you start a fire if you haven't practiced starting a fire. So right. just important things. <laughs> I learned that on my bike trip last year that I read about things and I never did them until I had to and that was scary that's kind of late yeah it's really late then that's a really good tip okay well is there anything else that you'd like to include on anything it could be dispatch hiking life whatever (laughs) um I think that you know I've been tremendously lucky and and the fact that my daughter uh, knows you (sighs) called me up and said Kaylin's coming to California can she stay with you yeah and I wish you luck on your journey across the United States. You know, you're uh, incredibly energetic and, and bright and talented. I look forward to following your adventures across the country. Thank you so much. That's so sweet. I just, I've had the best time here and I've already learned so much. You know, it's always, that's one of my favorite things sometimes. I, I don't know someone before I go stay with them. And then I'm with them for three or four days and I probably talk to you the most. <laughs> we talk all the time. So maybe I know you a little better than I've known other people that I've stayed with. But by the time I leave, I'm like, wow, like I really have a friend, you know, I have like another family member. I know someone now, you know, that I can stay with or take care of them or they'll take care of me. And I like love that so much. So thank you so much for having me and letting me do this interview because I know you have so much to give for others to learn from you. Um, and you're just an amazing person. So thank you so much.
So now that you got to listen to David's story, or many stories, I just want to say again, thank you for so much for listening to this podcast. Stay tuned. I put a new podcast out every Friday. There's not a set time. They just come out when they come out. But you can always find a link to them in all of my social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I will put some links also where you can follow me on all these different social media outlets. I try to post really cool and interesting things, so check those out. Also, I put up a Patreon account, so on there you can become a monthly donor if you like what I do, if you feel inspired, if you feel like you've learned something, if you don't and you just want to help me out. Um, So I do travel with no money, but... I also work for things along the way, and I'm definitely putting out a service here, which I love doing, um, being able to share things and answer people's questions about travel or activism or yoga, anything that I'm doing like that. I am trying to give, give, give so that other people can feel whole as well, and other people give to me so much, so I also want to say thank you for that. But if you feel like supporting me at all, I will put a link to my Patreon account. You can become a monthly donor. I think you could donate just one time too, um, but you donate as much as you want. And I will use that money for groceries. I will use it for safe means of travel. And I will use it for good things so that I can keep sharing more with you, um, which is what I really, really like to do. So I would love to be able to podcast and travel blog full-time and support myself in that way. And eventually, I probably will go to school for writing and so that I can reach a bit bigger audience. But for now, this is what I'm doing, and I really enjoy it, and I get a lot out of that. And I also believe that other people do too. So like I said, if you want to support me in any way, that is an amazing way to do that. And if you can't do that or you don't want to do that, please rate this podcast in the iTunes uh, library. I, I don't know what it is. That Just in iTunes. Rate me on iTunes. Please leave comments, things like that. Share these with people you know that you think they might be helpful to. So thank you so much. Make sure you follow me on wanderwoman.online where you can find links to podcasts, videos, pictures, my social media outlets, and articles. So thank you for listening. I think that's like the fourth time that I said that. I'm just going in circles now. I'm, I don't know. All right, catch you next time. Happy travels. Wonder women, the Well